Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is a Soul Fire production. Good morning, everybody. Good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night to people who are... <laughs> so challenged. Oh, I'm sort of laughing today because it's me talking to me. My lovely blister is doing birth stuff today, surprisingly shocking that a birth worker would have birth stuff to do. So uh, I thought I'd just record by myself because one of those podcasts where I have a lot of things to cover and data to cover, and I wanted to get off my chest. I didn't want to wait too long because then the stuff gets old and then we move on to other things. So I hope that you'll uh, enjoy the podcast without bliss. She'll be back next week. So here we go. Uh, I am in Gallup, New Mexico on my way home from lovely two weeks in Texas. First, I spent some time with uh, lovely Carmen and visited with her family in Lubbock, Texas. Saw her beautiful new birth center. And that was great. I got a drawing from one of her children of me and my, of my cat was nice and I wanted to thank Carmen for that and the hospitality and then down into Austin had a great time in Austin as everybody who goes to Austin has a great time I did a reteach breach seminar there and want to thank Lauren for being the host and all the midwives down there I'm not going to start naming names because I'm definitely going to leave somebody out but you guys know who you are and it was a great time we had a both Austin and Dallas were sort of overloaded we had 23 to 26 attendees at both the two seminars, which is great for talking, but not great for hands-on, but we were able to do it. So I want to, again, thank uh, the people in Austin. I also had some fun in Austin because I got to see my friend Kimberly and her new baby and uh, record a podcast for her, which will be coming out, I think, later this year, early next year. She's starting a podcast with her friend Peggy. So good luck to them. And then uh, it was lovely to see her. I hadn't, you know, I haven't seen her all the time. I see her every seminar because she's one of the women in the, the heads up disappearing art of breach delivery documentary that I show to start each seminar. Then I got to go see my friend Jen and Adam. Jen also, along with Kimberly, had a home breach birth with me in Los Angeles when they were still there. They've all repatriated themselves to Texas. Smart for them. And uh, Jen works for, is the producer for Dell Big Tree and the High Wire. So I got to go over to the Highwire Studios and have a little conversation with Dell, and it was great. He's a really great guy, and Jen and Adam, great. I got to see their kids, and that was great. And then my friends, <laughs> Sarah and Rich, who um, just moved to Boston as well from, from Southern California, and they had one of the most memorable home twin deliveries I've ever had. They had twins that were uh, quite discordant, but growing on their own growth curve, and First one was a vacuum vertex, and the second one was an in, one of my internal pedalic versions. And Poppy and Cash are doing great, and it was fun to see them. And Poppy drew me a picture and showed me her bug collection, and that was pretty cool. So hello to everybody down in Austin. And then I got up to Dallas, and Dallas was great too. I mean, I can't thank Haley enough and Gail for driving me back and forth from the RV park. We had uh, a lot of fun with those people. I got to go to a Dallas Stars game with a friend of mine. It was nice to have a little bit of male camaraderie. And then it was a special surprise was that I had an OB, Sean was there, and also 
a OB resident, uh, Jessica was there and was amazing because I generally don't get doctors to come to these. But just this morning, or maybe it was last, last night, I guess it was, Jessica texted me and she texted me uh, that she got back to work the next day. And she said this, I don't want to annoy you with messages. No, that was this morning, actually. But you wouldn't believe that I just did my first breach delivery. It was amazing. Mom came in and she refused a C-section. Oh my God, you would not believe it. Yeah, I would. It was good. My first delivery today was a breach. And that was like one or two days after taking the breach seminar. She said it was amazing that she's kind of shocked on the impeccable timing. And so when I get a letter like this from somebody or some, some of the midwives that take the course that will send me an email later on saying, we had a surprise breach. I knew exactly what to do. Or some of the midwives who are actually now taking on breach deliveries and giving women choices. It, it warms my heart. I can't tell you. I mean, I, you know, I get emotional. All of you guys know me. Get, I get emotional. And uh, today's podcast is going to be some gamut of emotions because there's some really great things that are happening and there's some really sort of awful, scary, weird things that are happening. So I thought I wanted to get into some of them today. Got some letters to read. Uh, but first, I wanted to just talk a little bit about breach birth because of Jessica's text to me and because it just finished the last of 12 reteach breach seminars since april 1st all over the country from virginia and south carolina and kentucky and hawaii and montana and wyoming and texas kansas city and fort collins colorado redding california i've been all over and put a lot of miles on the uh, the rv the beast and I'm now headed back to Kanab to um, start to get my new homestead squared away. I have no furniture, no bed, no nothing, but we're working. I'm going to start working on that. But this is what I was, this is some thoughts that, of mine that, that go like this. We are doing women enormous harm by taking away their bodily autonomy when their, when their baby is breached. In theory, state and federal laws support the principle of informed consent and informed refusal, and nearly every hospital has a patient's bill of rights that ensures consent before medical procedures. Yet we throw these legal and ethical rights away when a baby turns bottom first. We can do better. We owe it to the women we care for. Women should not be forced to leave the hospital in order to exercise their right of informed consent. Every woman with a breech baby deserves access to skilled pr practitioners in her own community who can support her, whether she chooses a planned cesarean section or a vaginal breech birth. Any either choice is reasonable with given informed consent. During my years in home birth practice, I became aware that we obstetricians project a lot of our anxiety onto the women we care for. In healthy women, pregnancy is a normal physiologic bodily function that works best when women are in a safe, private environment. Midwives are experts at normal birth, and in my experience, their model of care leads to better outcomes and higher rates of satisfaction. We as obstetricians obstetricians can learn much from them. While breech birth at home may not be the ideal for most, it remains the only choice for many women in this country other than cesarean for breech birth. Our efforts should not be put into restricting choice, but to honoring our ethical obligations to the women we serve. We can support this goal by learning and then teaching the skills that make our profession unique. By supporting colleagues who offer vaginal breech birth and by advocating for more robust breech training and education from our professional societies. And I have to tell you, as I watch these seminars take place, 
when I first start doing the demo, demos with Sophie and her mom, I have one for lithotomy and one for upright breach. You know, I'm doing the pushing, I'm doing the talking. 30 to 50, 45 minutes into it, I could just step aside and midwives are teaching midwives and, you know, occasionally I'll chime in or I'll correct something or that. But it's, it's the enthusiasm is amazing. And watching Jessica, the resident, and her enthusiasm this week, I think the enthusiasm exists in residents too. Unfortunately, I think it gets beaten out of them. And we need to get into the residency programs. We need to bring it back. The C-section rate's way too high. And women deserve these choices. And I'll just leave it at that. And, you know, part of the problem I have all the time is with uh, the American College of OBGYN and the selective um, cognitive dissonance that hospitals and risk managements and OB departments have with choosing which guidelines they're going to follow, which guidelines they aren't going to follow. And remember when ACOG puts out a guideline, about two thirds of them are consensus opinion only. And the opinion that you're going to get from academicians who sit on the panels of ACOG that come up with these guidelines is certainly going to be of one mind in one box. And you're never going to get you know, outside the box opinions from ACOG. And ACOG knows that their guidelines are supposed to be guidelines. And yet they end up being benchmarks for quality and hospitals will adopt the ones that suit their goals and their model of care. And they will ignore the ones that don't. And I want to I want to talk a little bit about ACOG. They sent me an email that I got on today, today, October 31st, Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody, by the way. So they have their practice advisory, COVID-19 vaccination considerations for OBGYN care. And in September, ACOG released an update practice advisory to COVID-19 to include recommendations for the use of the bivalent boosters in pregnant and non-pregnant individuals. And ACOG says they recommend that all eligible persons aged six months and older, including pregnant and lactating individuals, receive a COVID-19 vaccine or vaccine series. ACOG recommends that pregnant and recently pregnant people, pregnant people, up to six weeks postpartum receive a bivalent mRNA COVID-19 vaccine booster dose following the completion of their last COVID-19 primary vaccine dose or monovalent booster. ACOG says for both primary series and booster doses, vaccination may occur in any trimester. An emphasis should be on vaccine receipt as soon as possible to maximize maternal and fetal health. COVID-19 vaccines may be administered simultaneously with other vaccines, including vaccines routinely administered during pregnancy, such as influenza and Tdap. We're going to talk about Tdap in a second. I don't know what news they're watching. I don't know what world they live in or what world I'm living in, I guess, because everything I see about these shots shows that they often will have negative efficacy. They don't work for very long. The boosters are not necessarily specific. They may or may not cause problems, but the benefits are certainly minimal in people of this age group. And in other countries around the world, um, the opposite is happening. And we're seeing recommendations withdrawn to give it to young children or young adults. And yet ACOG, which they have done since April, I think, of 2021, long before there was really any data on this, ACOG has been recommending the COVID vaccine. For an organization that's dedicated to the welfare of women's, women's health and pregnancy, it's, it's inconceivable to me that there's been no 
but he's stepping out of the box and saying, hold on, ACOG. I mean, somebody from academia to step up. I don't see, you know, you see cardiologists like Peter McCullough or, or Dr. Merrick or Robert Malone or other, Peter Corey, other physicians stepping up and talking about some of the problems with this vaccine. I haven't seen any notable OBs stepping outside the box. And I'm just, I'm just bringing that point up because I really don't understand exactly why they're doing it. ACOG also recently sent out a thing um, about oxytocin shortage. And I just thought it was sort of funny because there currently is an oxytocin shortage, but I don't think it's what they think it means because what they're talking about is there's a Pitocin shortage. I think what you guys in Britain call Syntocin, but synthetic oxytocin is not oxytocin. And yet in every aspect of their notice, they, they call it oxytocin. So I think it's kind of funny when they say, you know, is there a shortage of oxytocin in the United States? And it's like, yeah, there is, because there isn't a lot of love around here right now. There's a lot of anger, disillusionment, frustration. All those things are not oxytocin-secreting events. But they say, I'm going to use the word pitocin. They say there is a pitocin shortage. The shortage is affecting hospitals and regions differently. And they also say uh, that the back orders may go on at least through this month. They're not sure when they're going to when it's going to end. But they actually have some very interesting alternative strategies for pitocin when there's an expected shortage. And I, I'm just going to read them because I think I hope you'll get the irony in it that I did. Until the pitocin supply shortage has been resolved, each facility may need to establish a cross-departmental team and an action plan to optimize the use of oxytocin. Examples of interventions could include the following. Antipartum, develop a hierarchy of scheduled and unscheduled inductions as needed and create ongoing processes of review. I think that what that means in English is that don't necessarily induce so many people. Consider specific indications and contraindications to uterotonics during stratification of individual risk for postpartum hemorrhage based on historical factors. So in other words, plan ahead and, and be prepared. I think, I, I think that that's what that means. They are complicating the simple. It's one of the themes of the podcast is that the bigger the organization is, the more complicated they make things that are actually quite simple. But maybe don't induce so many people. Maybe that's a good idea. And if they can decide to not induce so many people when there's a shortage, then maybe we could continue that after the Pitocin shortage ends. For intrapartum planning, consider delineating admission criteria for active labor. For example, don't admit people until they're at least four centimeters dilated. What a great idea. Send them home. Use cervical ripening agents for inductions of labor when the Bishop score is not favorable to maximize the Bishop score prior to initiating oxytocin to reduce overall usage. For example, consider use of a balloon with, with mesoprostol for cervical ripening rather than the concomitant use of oxytocin. And again, make sure that there's an indication for induction that's actually reasonable. Okay, the next they say enhance active management of labor, including amniotomy to minimize need for pharmacologic augmentation, shorten time to delivery, and minimize hemorrhagic risk. I would say, how about just leave people alone? Again, it's not in their model of care to leave people alone. We talk about this at the seminars. One of the hardest things for me in transitioning from being a hospital-based practitioner to being a home-based practitioner was learning to take my hands and sit on them 
which is what the midwives taught me long ago. I mean, I don't knit, but I, you know, that's an old joke that, that midwives, you know, if they can learn to knit because it keeps them busy and keeps them, their hands, you know, out of the woman, just leave the woman alone. Don't be so eager to induce them and augment them and, and wear their uterus out so that you are increasing their risk for hemorrhage. Next, they say stratify and update individual risk for postpartum hemorrhage with anticipatory planning for management. And then they offer a uh, stratifying risk found in ACOG practice bulletin number 183, table two, but I, I didn't bother to look that up. They also say limit wasting of oxytocin, oh, limit wasting of the labor oxytocin infusion bag and use it after delivery. Use the same bag, don't, don't waste bags. Well, that makes perfect sense. That's a good idea. If you're using Pitocin for a legitimate reason, why waste it? Okay, agree with that one. For postpartum, they say consider 10 units intramuscular oxytocin postpartum for hemorrhagic prophylaxis. I'm assuming they mean instead of 20, but because I don't know what else they would give. It comes in 10 units uh, uh, vials, so maybe they usually give 20. At home, I, I only give 10. Uh, most of the midwives I know only give 10 to start when necessary, and we don't do active management in general, unless there's, a, unless there's an indication, a history. Alternatively, they say consider replacing oxytocin infusion with a one-time dose of alternative uterotonics such as methylergotamine or methogen, prostaglandin, mesoprostol, depending on patient risk factors. Again, they get back to that ACOG practice bulletin number 183. And they say when postpartum hemorrhage has occurred, consider using two doses of uterotonics, either methogen and prostaglandin together. They don't talk about uh, TXA, but you could also have TXA in there. Oh yeah, it says when initial medical therapy fails, tranexamic acid should be considered. So they do mention that, sorry, my bad. But anyway, they talk about uh, tighter control of the current inventory of Pitocin or less, or avoid routine use of Pitocin in first trimester decencies for, I guess, for miscarriage. So if there's ways of saving and not using Pitocin when there's a Pitocin shortage, then maybe we could just continue that afterwards. So I have a couple letters I'd like to read. Although I'm missing bliss terribly today, here's a letter uh, that will help me feel better about it. This is from Haley from Hot Springs. And she writes, Dear Dr. Stu, I'm a relatively new listener of, of Bliss Young's and your podcast. I love that. The Bliss's podcast with me, Dr. Stu. However, I have been introduced to your work previously through the Indie Birth Association. I've had two children in the past three years, both at home, and love learning about everything related to autonomous birth. I am particularly fascinated by vaginal breech birth. I suppose I have been learning as much as I can about it because I live in a state, Arkansas, where breech presentation will automatically make a woman, quote, risk out, unquote, of home birth with a licensed midwife. My first two births have been relatively normal, but you never know how future babies will be. And instead of being fearful of breech presentation, I am learning everything I can about it. It is really fascinating and not as scary as I might have thought it was just a few years ago. I'm writing to say that when I listen to you speak so freely and candidly on your podcast, it reminds me of the way the late Dr. Robert S. Mendelson wrote about the medical establishment in his book, Male Practice, a pun on malpractice, how doctors manipulate women and how to raise a healthy child in spite of your doctor. His other book is Confessions of a Medical Heretic. I haven't read yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Well, now so am I, actually. You probably are familiar with his books. Actually, I was not. Thank you. As they came out in the late 70s and early 80s. Well, wait a minute. In the 70s and 80s, I was probably not reading medical books. 
I did read Atlas Shrugged in the 1980s, 1986, though. So anyway, uh, get back to the letter. If you are familiar, I hope you take my comparison of you to him as a great compliment. If you have not read his books, then I would have to say you would probably enjoy them as he speaks so candidly and bluntly about how he sees, quote, modern medicine, unquote. A funny excerpt from the book, he says, quote, I'm also concerned about the obligatory ritual of placing silver nitrate in the eyes of the newborn, theoretically to guard against gonorrheal infection. It's a useless procedure, and there is no scientific basis to believe that it's safe. Yet in many states, it is required by law. I tell my students to comply with the law, but do it by squirting the chemical in the general direction of the baby from 10 to 20 feet away, unquote. <laughs> ha ha. He goes on to say, quote, the mandatory use of silver nitrate in the eyes of the newborn is one of the most revealing examples of modern medicine's attitude towards women. One of the things I was taught in medical school was how to take a patient's history. If I ask a patient whether she has had high blood pressure and she says, no, I was to write down, no. If I asked her whether she had ever had a venereal disease and she said, no, I was to write down, patient denies venereal disease. Just as some religions have their original sin, medicine has its original disease. When a woman is pregnant, doctors proceed on the assumption she has gonorrhea, unquote. <laughs> yeah, I do have to read his stuff. His humor in observing the absurdities of obstetric practice in the early 1980s is entertaining and refreshing, but the fact that many of the absurdities of obstetric care 40 years ago are not artifacts of an uninformed and outdated era, but instead are the realities of obstetric care in the, today in 2020, well, that is just sad. It's one of those, quote, if you don't laugh, you'll cry kind of things. That's true. I just want to say that just as I was grateful to Dr. Mendelssohn for writing these types of books and educating me the truth about our medical system, I am grateful to listen to you. I love the podcast and have been listening to all the episodes I can. Thanks for being brave enough to speak your truth and advocating for freedom from medical tyranny in the birth world and beyond. Wishing you the best, Haley. Haley, thank you. I'm, I'm really moved by your letter. And I'm hoping that your letter inspires people to listen to some of the more drier, longer things that I, when I go off on a tangent about some research on vaccines or something like that, that, that will be in this podcast. I hope they remember that the reason I'm doing it is to inform people. And when I can insert humor, I will, but sometimes things are so serious that people need to just hear it and make, uh, come to their own conclusion. I really appreciate your letter. As does Bliss. I know she does. Right. Then I have another letter. This is from Marissa. And she writes, Dear Dr. Stu and dear Bliss, I have been an avid listener since the beginning of 2022 when I was in my first trimester of my second pregnancy. Only 2022? <laughs> Marissa. No. My firstborn was a hospital birth with nurse midwives that ended up me having an epidural and being quarantined with a positive COVID test, even though I wasn't sick. <sighs> my son also was almost whisked away to baby prison because my water was broken for two days before they were in fear before and they were in fear of an infection occurring so they administered antibiotics to me and didn't like his oxygen levels he was also born in meconium fast forward to my second pregnancy and listening to you in bliss i desired a home birth because of my negative experience in the hospital i found a midwife that did home births but unfortunately in the state of ohio where i live they're not legally licensed practitioners the midwife wanted me to have co-care with an ob as well, just in case my pregnancy turned a different route. Co-care is impossible to find because no OB wants to be liable for something to go bad and be involved. 
Yeah, this is a real problem. State of Ohio is like other states. They don't allow certain types of midwives. They don't, if, and then they mandate that some midwives have supervision, but then they don't mandate that OBs actually supervise uh, midwives. So they end up uh, sort of a de facto way of eliminating the competition in the home birth world. My goal in this pregnancy was to have at least as least stress as possible, especially since my first one was during COVID. So I opted out of my home birth and chose the hospital route. Okay. I found a baby-friendly hospital as well as a CNM who would allow me to have the low intervention birth that I wanted. I was extremely excited that the hospital had a doula program where I would have a doula alongside the laboring, along me laboring, I guess, helping adhere to my birth wishes. Okay. People have heard me talk about this. Certainly people that come to my seminars know what I think about hospital doula programs. Um, the doulas may be lovely people and they may have uh, uh, the goal of being uh, supportive of you. But their real master is the hospital. The one, the hospital is the one that employs them, and so you always have to wonder what sort of fiduciary duty and responsibility they have if the hospital is or the doctor is recommending something that probably isn't necessarily in your best interest. Is the doula actually going to step in and say, "No, no, I think we need to wait on that," or whatever else, uh, or is that doula going to worry about getting reprimanded or fired? So it's a real problem with hospital-based doulas, but. I digress because it's it's Marissa's story and not mine. My due date had come and gone, and my midwife had come in for a non-stressed had me come in for a non-stressed test the week after my due date. I was concerned that they would press me to have an induction, which is their policy to do one at 42 weeks gestation. I had perfect fluid levels, and my son was kicking just fine, so I was given the clear to wait another week. The next day, I had prodromal labor brought on by the combination of black cohosh and the midwife's brew that I decided to take. God, I know Bliss would be commenting here about why are we meddling at all. I had my midwife's blessing to do that because I opted out of cervical checks as well as the membrane sweeps. I mean, you're only 41 weeks. She said that thanks to your podcast number 252, which I had expressed to her my desire not to be induced, but it was medically, unless it was medically necessary. Thinking it was time, we went to the hospital and my contractions slowed down. We've also talked about that on the podcast, how when you leave your nest to get in the car and drive to the hospital and go through all that rigmarole that they put you through, you're going to secrete adrenaline and your contractions are going to space out. It's very common. While in triage, they tried to get me to stay to be induced since I was just past my due date and my placenta was aging. They kept using the phrase that the placenta isn't as robust as it was before. Sensing some BS, my husband and I immediately said no and went home, even though it was against their wishes. You know, I, I had forgotten when I read this letter the first time how much dumb doctor dogma is in here, but there's a ton of dumb doctor dogma in here. The next day, I went into real labor after taking more midwife brew and, talk, and taking a walk with my husband and son. Five hours later, we were on the way back to the hospital. In triage, I had the nurse check me because I was sure that I had made good progress at home. I was elated to find out that I was six centimeters. Shortly after they admitted me into a labor and delivery room, the staff informed me that my midwife was out of town and that an OB would replace her for the evening. My husband and I said that we wanted a midwife, not an OB. Later, my labor and delivery nurse informed me that we would have a midwife present for the evening, which made me feel relief. My doula arrived and made the room more warm and serene with twinkle lights. One cool thing that my doula showed me was the purple line above my gluteal cleft. I wonder how she did that, I guess with a mirror. Oh no, maybe taking pictures, I guess. I forget about photos. 
The labor continued until about 11 p.m. when my, otherwise it was sort of contortionist, I think. The labor continued until about 11 p.m. when my midwife and I decided to break my water to get the progress moving faster. I had her check me at that point and I was nine centimeters dilated. My contractions grew stronger after that point and I started pushing it around 12.15 a.m. and my son was born at 12.59. He had a fast entry to the world. Actually, the midwife almost didn't catch him. He was a healthy eight pounds, 12. I was on an emotional high from the rush of oxytocin. By the way, that's real oxytocin, not pitocin. That's her oxytocin. It was incredible. My whole birthing team was blown away that I did it drug-free. Yes, you did. And I'm, and I'm like choking up a little bit because you overcame a lot to get your birth. And, and there were a lot of misconceptions, but it's your birth story and, and, and that you were delighted and that you had oxytocin rush uh, was good for you. It was good for your baby. It was good for your family. It was good for everything. They even flattered me saying that I handled it better than some women who give birth with an epidural. Shock. <laughs> they probably don't see it very often. Not only was it important for me to be able to give birth without the heavy drugs going into my body and therefore my son's body, but it was also important for these women to witness that we are meant to do it without the meds and BS. Thank you so much for your podcast. Without it, I wouldn't be able to be brave and speak up about what I wanted for me and my child. God bless you both. Continue to do what you do because eventually more and more women will decide that they can make better choices for their birth. Marissa. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot of things that if we wanted to pick on that were told to her or that even she even believed we could do that. But you know what? This is such a beautiful story. And I think everybody listening can take from it what they want. But ultimately, this is the goal that Bliss and I have is to spread the word that birth is an innate, normal function of your body. It does not need to be medically treated. Midwives accept the fact that, that it's, it's a natural phenomenon. They trust in it and they accept that there's uncertainty to it. So huge difference in a philosophy of life when you accept uncertainty, you sort of take a sigh of relief and understand you can't control everything. And when you, when you understand that, everything about your life tends to be a little bit better. Yes, there's chaos. And for people that are OCD and that want to control everything, it's, it's tough to get, but, that, but that's not a healthy way to live your life either. So being able to let go and having that philosophy makes you less vulnerable to being caught up in some sort of mass formation where you know, you're doing something for the collective. Whereas the medical model looks at everything as something that's, that needs medical treatment, that uncertainty is not something they can even handle. And so they're going to control everything. And in doing so, they treat everyone as if a problem is about to develop. It's just um, not a great place to live. And it's not a great place to, for something as life-changing and as eventful as giving birth. So our goal is to actually change the face of birth in the United States and uh, obviously other countries as well. And, you know, we can't do, we're not big. We, we're very small. We, we don't have a huge platform, but our platform is growing. And I really want to spread the word that, you know, the more people that step out of the box and, and realize that the hospital model, while good for some, has not been good for most. And a woman should choose to give birth where she feels safest, but safety needs to be defined fairly. And I'll just leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Salty yeah. AF. I have my salty AF water bottle here. Um, <laughs> Element is one of our sponsors, LMNT. And they are a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff. 
and none of the BS like us. Like us, right? I love when you say that. It's, I look forward to it every week. It's got electrolytes in it, which is what you really need when you need a, a replenishment, when you're sweating, when you're working out, when you're in labor, when you've been up for 80 hours uh, <laughs> taking care of somebody in labor. Yeah. It would have been good. You might have been more refreshed if you would have had your element. And I probably would have. Right. It's really good for those sorts of situations. And it's and uh, it, it's so much better than some of the other drinks which have sugar or other fake sugars or things in them, as you know, that I drink, I shouldn't, but I do. So, um, and it comes in multiple flavors. Bliss's favorite is, uh, uh, mango chili and mine is raspberry, mm-hmm. but it comes in, let's see, I think I got them memorized now, citrus and raspberry, well, raspberry is my favorite and, um, orange and lemon habanero and, uh, watermelon, watermelon, unflavored, and unflavored I and thought- chocolate salt. Right. Anyway, if you go to drink element, dot com that's drink com and put in the code word birthing instincts you'll get a free sample pack with any order uh please uh support them as they support the podcast and we just want to send our gratitude to them thank you element thanks element along the lines of of uh acog's covid recommendation for vaccine long before it was actually approved or safe in pregnancy or even there was any data at all in pregnancy Whatever data was was that Pfizer had done was likely tainted and certainly uh, not released to the public until I think there were Freedom of Information Act requests. They wanted to hide their data for seventy five years. It's really interesting that you want you want to hide your data for seventy five years. It's a really nice number because that just means pretty much everyone you gave it to won't be around anymore. If it's such a good medicine, why would you hide it for seventy five years? Why would you hide it at all? Wouldn't you want to convince people? Our model of care, the midwifery model of care is we're open and honest about pretty much everything we do. We don't say something is risky and then people say, well, how risky is it? And we just say, well, it's really risky. No, we, we openly tell them either, I don't know how risky it is, let's look it up. Or we tell them well, the actual risk is actually this. So let's look at, there's a paper that came out conveniently. It's almost when I see these papers, again, I'm such a skeptic and you guys know that. And I often say it's not my skepticism that should bother you. It's their certainty. But I'm a skeptic when articles come out that sort of fall in lockstep with what the narrative is that they want you to follow. And it comes out at a time when there's literature all over the world that's saying pretty much the opposite, maybe not so specifically on pregnancy, but that this that this vaccine, this mRNA technology is not what we were sold. So there's an article that says peripartum outcomes associated with COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And it was published in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association, Pediatrics. Now, I'm not sure how close the Journal of the American Medical Association is to the American Medical Association, but you guys know by now how I feel about it. If you don't, you can look back. A few years ago, I did a, a solo podcast, again, solely on the American Medical Association and what I think of them. So I have a bias, and I'm being very open and honest about my bias, but my bias is born of a lot of research and years of experience. And this is where wisdom comes from. Wisdom comes from making mistakes and looking back at things that you did and realizing that didn't work so well and trying other things and finding things that work pretty well. And then finding systems that seem to be reliable. And every time you, you know, if every time you, someone tells you something and they're wrong, why do we keep going back to that person as a resource? And yet, it seems to happen a lot. If you were a coach of a football team, 
and you were always wrong. The defensive coordinator was always thinking run when they were passing. The likelihood that that defensive coordinator would make it to the end of the season is very, very small. Yeah, we have people in government positions and advisory positions and experts, so, so-called experts, who've been in positions of expertise for decades, who've been wrong consistently, and they're still collecting their salaries and pensions. Something wrong with that system. That's the bias I come into when I look at an article like this. So they say, in this systemic review and meta-analysis, COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy was not associated with increased risks of peripartum adverse outcomes, including preterm birth, small for gestational age infant, low APGAR score at five minutes, cesarean delivery, postpartum hemorrhage, and chorioamnionitis. Those are the parameters they looked at. Furthermore, COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy was associated with lower risks of neonatal intensive care unit admission, intrauterine fetal death, and maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection. So I'm just leaving it at that. Let's go through this because there's things that they're not looking at and some of the things they're looking at, I'm not sure exactly how they determine them. So we'll see if we can figure it out. They say the importance of this is that pooled evidence regarding neonatal and maternal outcomes in association with COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy is scarce. Yeah, that's true. So they use the data sources of published PubMed and Embase which are databases where they can look back and, and see information. Again, I can't comment on them. I just know that retrospective review of data from multiple different sources, there's quality issues, there's bias issues, and it's this old thing, the garbage in, garbage out issues. And they tried to, they tried to clean it up and look at it, but they used some techniques, which I'll just give you a sample of, I'll read it to you, and you'll understand that no one can understand what it really means. Uh, this was prospective trials and observational studies comparing the individuals who received at least one COVID vaccine during pregnancy and those who did not. So this is not necessarily people that got the whole series. This might have had people who got one, didn't do well with one, or got it late, didn't get their second one. But it's not somebody who's so-called so fully vaccinated. And I'll just add for people that don't follow this stuff, that when you look at adverse effects of fully vaccinated people, they don't count you to be fully vaccinated until at least two weeks after you've had your second dose. So if you have your first dose and pass out, or if you have your second dose and get a rash, or anything, that's not considered a vaccine side effect until at least two weeks after the second dose in their data. Okay, so they, they used two independent investigators. They extracted relevant data. I don't know what their biases were. We gotta assume that they were unbiased. The primary outcomes were the neonatal outcomes, including preterm birth, small for gestational age, low-apgar scar, NICU admission, and interpartum fetal demise. And the secondary outcomes were maternal outcomes, including maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection, serine delivery, postpartum hemorrhage, and chorioamnionitis, as we talked about. All right, the results, their summary. COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy was associated with a lower risk of NICU admission and interpartum fetal demise, whereas there were no statistically significant association with preterm birth small for gestational age or low APGAR score. Uh, vaccination during pregnancy was associated with lower risk of maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection, whereas it was not associated with increased risk of cesarean delivery, postpartum hemorrhage, or chorionaminitis. So in other words, they're basically saying that it's pretty good and that it should be encouraged for pregnant individuals. That's their summation. So let's dive in just a little deeper here. Since the approval of COVID-19 messenger RNA vaccines, vaccination during pregnancy has been recommended to prevent illness 
in pregnant individuals and newborns. However, vaccine hesitancy during pregnancy may still exist owing to safety concerns. Well, yeah, up until papers like this, which are questionable, there's been no real safety data. And why would any pregnant woman necessarily who won't even allow secondhand smoke or you won't eat sushi get anywhere near an experimental vaccine when she's got a baby inside of her? And also, what is the risk to her and her age group of actually getting sick? So they go on and say initial data on COVID-19 vaccines were limited because pregnant individuals were not included in the phase three trials, of course. And then they look at um, uh, V-safe data, all right? And they say preliminary studies for pregnant individuals did not show the increased risk of adverse neonatal outcomes, including miscarriage, preterm birth, small size, and fetal neonatal death associated with MNRI COVID vaccine. They didn't see those, and they got their data because they looked at the references from V-safe data. Okay, well, I was just listening to, uh, I think, Del Bigtree and Jeffrey Jackson on the highway, and they said that V-safe data was an app that you had on your phone that essentially gave you boxes that you could check yes or no and asked you very limited things about fever, injection site, rash, that sort of thing, but didn't ask if you had a heart attack, didn't ask if you uh, had a stroke, didn't ask any of those things. They had a box for other, but I have no idea how well these things were analyzed. So again, I don't have the time, and neither do you, to look at every reference that they use, but because of the, what they're stating, I did look at those references and I did see that the data came from vSafe and vSafe is really flawed and you can look it up yourself. Again, I'm, I'm just trying to present data here as honestly as I can, but I'm not, I'm not saying that this is definitive or not definitive. I'm just saying that, that it doesn't fit with what common sense would dictate to me. And therefore I'm very suspicious about it. So they, they talk about their eligibility criteria. I'm not gonna get into that because it gets dry, but here's one that I wrote, I put a comment UG by it. Oh, this is, this is how they did their research. This is how they analyzed their data. There's nobody on the, on the planet that I know of, except maybe Rixa, or Rixa's sister, who might be able to analyze this, but let me just read it to you. Please don't fall asleep. The unadjusted and adjusted whenever available odds ratios of each study were extracted. For studies that used propensity score analysis, we extracted the outcomes estimated by propensity score matching or inverse probability treatment weighting. The odds ratio with a 95% confidence interval of each outcome was calculated using the review manager, RevMan, version 5.4, Nordic Cochrane Center, the Cochrane collaboration with a random effects model. Heterogeneity was assessed using the I-square with more than 50% indicating substantial heterogeneity. As secondary analysis, we compared the frequency of preterm birth and small for gestational age in the two subgroups. Pregnant individuals who received the first vaccination during the first trimester versus those who did not. Pregnant individuals who received the vaccine during the second trimester versus those who did not receive any vaccination during pregnancy. Publication bias was assessed by Egger linear regression tests and funnel plots of the primary outcomes in each study using ProMeta 3.0. Okay. If anybody's still listening, I have no idea what that all means. Again, so they put out a paper that, that has all this in there, and it sounds very impressive. It sounds like somebody that's got six, six degrees, uh, six college degrees after their name. But, you know, it sounds impressive. Does it make it impressive? Does it make it accurate? I don't know. Again, my bias is that they're struggling 
right now to keep all the bad information out. And they're almost in their death throes. And so what they're asking people to do is come out with studies in, in journals that have had some question over the COVID period of time. JAMA and New England Journal of Medicine have had some reputation problems by printing, by uh, putting out articles that had to be retracted. And it just seems like they're asking for this data and somebody says, okay, we'll give it to you. That's what it seems like to me. There were, they, they, uh, they looked at 263 articles and settled on nine of them. I'm not sure if that's relevant or not. It's kind of a weird number that they only found nine out of 263 that met their criteria. Did the other ones not meet their criteria? Did the other ones have data that didn't like? I don't know, I'm not gonna look. They said the COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy was associated with lower risks of NICU admission. So my question for that would be why? Why? Why would the babies that mothers did not get COVID vaccine would have higher rates of NICU admission? Then there's no explanation. Uh, there were no statistically significant differences between the other primary outcomes. Now they say something that's interesting to me, and again, this one popped out at me. It said, between the pregnant individuals who received the first vaccination during the first trimester versus those who did not receive COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy, the instances of preterm birth were not statistically different, but the odds ratio was 1.81. So the, uh, there was 1.8 times greater risk of having preterm birth if you got the vaccine in the first trimester, but they found that not statistically significant. Yet sometimes when the odds ratio is much closer than that, they found it statistically significant. I don't know. I can't quite figure out the math, but it doesn't pass the smell test to me. Oh man, in particular, since most pregnant individuals COVID-19 who required intensive care were unvaccinated, maternal protection against SARS-CoV-2 is paramount. Given the promising efficacy of COVID-19 vaccination in preventing maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection, what journals are they reading? What news reports are they watching? Because those last two statements are just not true. And the critical association between COVID-19 and neonatal maternal outcomes, our findings further underline the importance of maternal protection against SARS-CoV-2 infection. Right? Again, no one ever tells me what the, is the actual risk of COVID to healthy women in that age group. How many pregnant women are actually getting sick? I mean, is it twice as many? but twice times a very small number, still, still essentially zero. No one ever says that number. I've looked at paper after paper after paper for two years now, or a year and a half, and I have not found any somebody that's saying the incidence of pregnant women who get SARS-CoV-2, and if they do get it, what's the, what is their epidemiologic category? What's going on with them that they might've gotten it? Are there other factors that we could use to predict? Nobody ever said that. All they say is it's higher, and therefore, we have to give this vaccine, which shows promising efficacy in preventing maternal SARS-CoV-2 infection, which people are coming out now already saying it doesn't prevent it, and it doesn't prevent transmission. Does it minimize ICU admissions? Maybe. But are we really worried about that? That's not what they're talking about. They come out with a conclusion that may or may not be correct, but there's data that says the opposite. And the people that are saying the opposite have less at stake than the people that are saying this. Their financial, the, the people that are saying the opposite aren't gonna make any money from saying the opposite. As a matter of fact, they're probably gonna lose their, you know, lose grants, lose their careers, that sort of thing. Whereas you have to take all these things with a grain of salt because it's always follow the money. And so I don't trust them. And they talk about it being safe and beneficial 
for pregnant women, but it's only relevant if the women are made aware of the actual risk of catching COVID, which has not been forthcoming. And we would only know what we know in the past year. We don't have any long-term analysis of these injections on humans and their unborn fetuses. And so to say that it's safe and effective and beneficial to mothers and newborns, they just live in a different world. And I, and I cannot support them, and I will continue to speak out against them. Okay, along that same line, um, recently, just recently, the FDA approved the vaccine for use during third trimester of pregnancy to prevent whooping cough in infants younger than two months of age. So since I think 2012 or maybe before, ACOG has recommended that pregnant women in the third trimester get the flu shot and also get a Tdap shot. Both the flu shot and the Tdap shot up until this month were given off-label. And then this month at the ACIP meeting, that's the advisory council on whatever INP stand for, that approved the COVID vaccine for the CDC childhood vaccine schedule, they snuck this through. And I'm still trying to find where on their agenda that they did it, but I, I see an announcement from the FDA dated October 7th, 2022. And they say the US Food and Drug Administration approved Boostrix, which is tetanus toxoid, reduced diphtheria toxinoid, and acellular pertussis vaccine for immunization during the third trimester of pregnancy to prevent pertussis, commonly known as whooping cough, in infants younger than two months of age. So again, even though it's been being given and recommended by ACOG for at least the last decade, it wasn't approved until October 7th of 2022. So there is off-label medication was supported by ACOG, whereas things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin with much longer track records of safety were vilified. They go on to say, the FDA says, while vaccination is the best method for providing protection, infants younger than two months of age are too young to be protected by the childhood pertussis vaccine series. This is the first vaccine approved specifically for use during pregnancy to prevent a disease in young infants whose mothers are vaccinated during pregnancy. I just want to imply that that means that the flu shot and the COVID-19 shot are not approved in pregnant women, just so you know that. Yet ACOG and most OBs in lockstep have been insisting it's been safe and using it off-label for years, as I've said. According to the CDC, 4.2% of the total cases of pertussis reported in the United States in 2021 were in infants younger than six months of age, which is, I guess, when they can get their first DTaP shot. And approximately 31% of those 4.2% required hospitalization. So there's one to 2% required hospitalization. When the Boostrix vaccine was given during pregnancy, it boosts antibodies in the mother, which are transferring it to the developing baby. Again, just like I said in the previous segment, the thing that's missing here is what's the actual number of cases, all right? I mean, if, if we have 10,000 cases, maybe that's significant. If we have 200 cases, then 4.2% of 200 is eight, nine people. All right. So we don't know what the actual number of cases it is, and they never tell you. I love the fact that they named their medication, this pharmaceutical company named it Boostrix because it boosts antibodies. Well, at least, you know, that makes sense. Sometimes you see a medication and it has a name that makes no sense whatsoever. Anyway, the initially approved the FDA in 2005 as a single dose booster minimization for tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis in individuals 10 through 18 years of age. Subsequently, the FDA approved Boostrix to include individuals 19 years of age and older 
and to include use of an additional dose nine years or more after the initial dose of a Tdap vaccine. Okay, so interestingly enough, they recommend that they give a booster nine years after you get your first, your Tdap vaccine. Yet if a pregnant woman gets a Boostrix shot in this pregnancy in 2022 and gets pregnant next year in 2023, they're gonna recommend that she get another one. That whatever her antibody she's circulating isn't good enough to protect that next baby, but it's good enough to protect her. So you go figure, right? Does that make any sense to anybody listening? I hope you're all shaking your heads no. Today's approval is specific to use in pregnancy to prevent pertussis in infants younger than two months of age. Since 2012, the CDC has recommended the use of Tdap vaccines during the third trimester of pregnancy. So the CDC has recommended it, but it hasn't been FDA approved. The determination of effectiveness of Boostrix administered during the third trimester to prevent pertussis among infants younger than two months of age was based, your question you wanna ask yourself is, why did they decide to approve it now if they've been recommending it for a decade? Why did they decide to approve it now? And did they just slip it through while everybody's looking at COVID to slip it through to give maybe more protection or more confidence in it? So how do they determine, what do they do now suddenly? And they just and what they said is they did a reanalysis of the Boostrix relevant data from an observational case control study of Tdap vaccine effectiveness. So there's no reference number here. I don't know when that analysis of Boostrix was done, but I assume it was done, you know, 10, 20 years ago when they got it approved for the for the 10 to 18 year olds. So all they did was look at their data from whatever year it was, 10, 20 years ago, and decide, oh yeah, I guess it's safe for infants younger than two months of age. Doesn't sound very reassuring to me. I would like an explanation. They should come out and they should explain that sort of thing but they don't, and they don't, even, they don't even give a reference. The study included approximately 680 pregnant individuals of whom about 340 received a non-US formulation of Boostrix and whom about 340 received saline placebo. After childbirth, the placebo recipients were then vaccinated with the non-US formulation of Boostrix. The rates of reported side effects following receipt of the non-US formulation of Boostrix administered during pregnancy were consistent with the rates following the receipt of the non-US formulation of Boostrix administered to study participants after childbirth. So wait a minute. They gave Boostrix to 340 women and they gave saline placebo to 340 women, but the side effects were reported in the 340 women who got Boostrix, not against the 340 women who got saline, but in a cohort of women who got Boostrix, the same medicine with the toxins and antigens in it, afterwards. So they didn't, so there wasn't a placebo controlled study from what I can tell. Makes no sense what they said. They said the study did not identify any vaccine related adverse effects on pregnancy, the fetus or newborn. But I want to know, did they look? I didn't notice any termites in your house. Did you inspect the house for termites? No, but I didn't notice any. So when they say the study did not identify any vaccine related adverse effects, because of the language they use, it doesn't really reassure me that they actually looked for those vaccine-related effects. It's kind of like the V-safe data. If they don't ask, then they're not going to report it. And by the way, how long do they follow these babies that got it in utero? Do we know anything about that either? No, we don't know anything about that either. And then they uh, put that at the very end. They, they say something about the FDA here. They say the FDA, and you know, I hope this makes you feel secure. An agency within the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services protects the public health by assuring the safety, effectiveness, and security of human and veterinary drugs 
vaccines, and other biologic products for human use and medical devices. The agency also is responsible for the safety and security of our nation's food supply, cosmetics, dietary supplements, products that give off electronic radiation, and for regulating tobacco products. Okay, enough of that. I just want to finish with saying that doing these podcasts by myself, where I'm actually not even looking at myself because I'm, I've got things up on the screen, but it's hard enough when I'm just staring at myself and not having Bliss as my foil and my muse it makes it very hard and makes me realize how important she is to me and to all of us as part of the podcast. So we missed her today. Somebody's getting the benefit of her Blissness <laughs> because she's working with a birthing mama today. And we'll see her again next week. But I just want to send a tribute to her. I want to send happy Halloween to everybody, but a tribute to Bliss uh, for being my friend and confidant and my podcast co-host and being the blisterious one. Uh, thanks, Bliss. And until the next week, guys, uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram.